Hello, and welcome to The Modern Consultant. I'm your host, Mark Ahrens, and on today's episode, I have the pleasure of hosting Bushan Sethi. Bushan is a partner at PwC and also an adjunct professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. And on today's episode, we talk about it all. We talk about how AI is affecting enterprise-level clients, mid, mid-level, uh, mid-market clients, also small businesses. We also talk about bigger issues that are affecting our society today, racism, classism, and everything in between. We talk about the pandemic. We talk about business leadership and ethics in the time of artificial intelligence and what we can do as a society, as citizens in a society, in a global society, to be able to architect a better tomorrow. We talk about quite a bit, things that neither of us have ever shared on any podcast anywhere. And I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. And with that, I look forward to seeing you on the other side. But Sean, I just want to say welcome onto the show. It is a pleasure to have you. And one of the things that I really appreciate, and you've shared a lot um, before we actually hit the record button, you know, working with Fortune 500s, but there were a couple points in there about just how you grew up and how it's shaped uh, who you are as a person here today, which I think personally uh, would give a lot of color to everything that we speak about here on AI. And so for the people who don't yet know who you are, how would you tell us? Yeah. Thanks, Bart. Really delighted to be here and thanks for the opportunity. Um, I grew up in a very um, humble beginnings in North London, uh, Indian immigrant families, um, middle-class parents, well-educated. But in that time, it was really hard to get good jobs. So father was an electrical engineer my mom was what we would call in the states a paralegal kind of you know for the public sector um, they really focused on education like every good immigrant family and that was kind of our route to everything um, they encouraged us to be curious learners and um, I've been a consultant for 25 years I left the UK um, at the turn of the century I've been in the US for around around 22 years I just got my American citizenship uh, a few weeks ago which I'm excited about um, but what I do right now is I help companies address kind of business problems around the areas of strategy and organization and helping them transform. Some of that's around technology, some of that's around creating new value, some of that's around taking out costs in a responsible way. But the humble beginnings and the curious learning and the thirst for kind of being a global citizen really helps me in my professional and personal life. And I'm really, really? excited to kind of engage in this dialogue and kind of hear from you because you're your own global citizen, and we have some similar stories in terms of in terms of our journeys as well. That we do, that we do, and to you know just just dive into the deep end. The topic that, of course, is on everyone's mind uh, is artificial intelligence. You know, November sixth, you know, uh, OpenAI releases this big update, and I'm curious. You know, you have this perspective uh, at the enterprise level, you know, and beyond. Uh, just just how are people responding to it? What does it mean? Yeah, so given, I mean, there was obviously a significant news event that that happened in terms of, you know, the CEO structure and who knows where that lands, where when this this episode gets aired, but obviously there's some there's some you know change in terms of the CEO ownership of, um, you know, OpenAI and the kind of the links with Microsoft, but more broadly, AI has just been over the last eleven months just a phenomenal case study in terms of how this has gone from a consumer experience that literally everybody is talking about ChatGPT and using it kind of on their personal devices 
to corporations and all the major tech firms having their own version and saying, how do we put this in the hands of enterprise users? So mm -hmm. real people doing real work in, in both knowledge-based industries and others, and to say, how does this fix the, the lessons of history? All the mm -hmm. other, many other kind of productivity promises through technology, whether it be cloud, whether it be um, automations of different kind, haven't yielded the benefits. This is a great, great hope for us. It isn't without its challenges, both in business and in society, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But just the momentum around this and the excitement from all types of people and the ability to correct some of the historical lessons of technology has just been amazing to be part of. Our clients are excited. Everyone's out there talking about this, thinking about their own experiments and their own use cases and how it can actually drive both top line and bottom line benefits. Speaking of which, I was listening to one of your earlier talks, and I think there was a number that you shared about what the what the opportunity uh, looked like financially with artificial intelligence, and that was pre-ChatGPT. Was the number like fifteen? How much was it? Fifteen point seven trillion by twenty thirty. Wow, um, it's interesting. We came up with that stat in twenty eighteen, where we looked because because AI is not new. Gen AI is a new phenomenon. But yeah. AI of all different kinds, you know, we see it in driverless cars. We see it in the maps that we use on the navigation systems. We see it in financial advice where we kind of have assisted, like robo-advisors they're called, kind of helping portfolio managers kind of make decisions about their customers' kind of asset allocation decisions. Yeah. So we've seen it in various forms. So yes, we put that stat together in 2018 um, using a similar method to kind of what others have done to say, Let's look at the jobs. Let's look at kind of what can be automated and what that actually does for an economy and how it can actually grow GDP. Because if you grow GDP, all boats rise. Um, uh, you can actually create jobs. You can actually provide healthcare. You can actually provide education, you know, wherever you are in the, in the world. And so that, that uh, definitely gets a lot of attention. But like any good plan, it's all about the execution. So um, yeah. I think lots of people are marching on to... to thinking about for their company what the benefits are and obviously what the associated risks are. You know, I think that's wonderful because calling back to a theme that you shared just a little bit earlier around, well, you didn't use these words um, uh, exactly, but I'm paraphrasing my interpretation and the democratization of the opportunity um, that technology brings to the world. One thing that I've personally had a semi-selfish interest in uh, has been just what new opportunities it could present to, you know, I don't know if we're still using this terminology with third world countries, like I'm from uh, Jamaica, you know, and I've always wondered, like, what would it take to be able to open up new economies uh, and to help individuals? And then, like you said, raise the GDP, rising tide raises all boats, uh, and to just have that positive impact uh, on the world around us. I want to use that as a springboard to dive into um, a potentially controversial topic um, that we were speaking about before the recording, which is just uh, you growing up um, and what it was like for you uh, being an immigrant uh, in the UK. And you know, as you know, as you mentioned, like you'd even gotten beaten up uh, growing up. Yeah. Um... Like like any um, person from the Indian subcontinent growing up in 1970s and 1980s England, um, 
we were not as accepted. Um, hmm. And it wasn't just us. It was kind of, you know, other races as well. But there was a huge um, way, um, uh, introduction of, of people from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh in, the, in that period of time. And the integration was a challenge. Um, I lived in, uh, you know, my family moved out to the suburbs of London when we were five years old. There were not, they were some, one of the only few um, people of color in the neighborhood. So, hmm. you know, our music, our dress sense, the smell of our food kind of was all different. Um, yeah. And uh, there were challenges. There were challenges um, in the playground, at school. There were challenges um, when we tried to kind of integrate into society. There were challenges for my parents in the workplace. And these were not, this wasn't, you know, bias. This was straight up racism. This was, <laughs> this was straight up go back to your own country, etc. The really sad <laughs> thing, Mark, is we're seeing aspects of that come you know, over, over COVID, we've seen that happen in London. Yeah. We've seen that happen in, in the U S like the racial hatred from certain small, very, very vocal pockets, both online and offline is increasing. And it really scares me mm. as a parent. It scares me as a business leader. It scares me as a taxpayer, um, as a citizen of a couple of countries. And uh, so, um, I grew up that way. And sometimes I really worry that some people want to bring us back to that way. And, um, and we've all we've got to figure out this this how to coexist, and we've got to embrace diversity. But frankly, that's why I live in New York. I think it's the most diverse, accepting, um, accommodating, exciting place in the world for to raise my kids. I relate. I haven't shared this story before, but when I first immigrated to the United States, uh, it was undergrad. I was working on a I was a research assistant to a co-investigator on a Harvard-led research study, and we were going into Gadsden County, Florida, uh, one of the uh, most um, underserved um, and uh, economically impoverished um, counties in Florida at the time. Uh, and part of our study um, was the CHOICE study, the Center for healthy uh, options for innovative community empowerment, if I'm remembering it correctly. But essentially, there was high levels of lead uh, that were in people's homes, um, particularly elderly populations. Uh, and we wanted to use a specialty uh, x-ray device to be able to detect those levels of lead. And so part of that meant recruiting um, people for, for the study uh, and uh, essentially door knocking. Uh, and part of that uh, led me into some more rural areas of the community. And, you know, I knew very little about the, the tangentially, you know, just bits and pieces of the United States. And then I remember um, I had door knocked. And after I had door knocked, um, I saw this Confederate flag. Uh, and I was like, oh. And then the dogs let loose. And then I started running as fast as I could <laughs> to basically get out of there. Um, thankfully, uh, you know, no racial epithets or anything were, you know, thrown my way. Um, but it's, it's, it's been, I've never forgotten and I've always had this undercurrent of being aware of what my uh, surroundings were like in the United States because that could happen. You know, and then, of course, with, you know, uh, uh, George Floyd and just just all the different events that have, of course, uh, taken place since then, uh, I think it underlines uh, the need for more tolerance uh, and even going beyond tolerance to perhaps uh, empathy and compassion um, to be able to make space not just for one, but for all uh, kinds of people. Um, 
And tying this into AI and the future and the transformation of business, I, I truly believe that businesses can be a vehicle for positive change in the world, you know, and part of that um, on a ground level uh, would look like making sure that AI data sets that they're trained on um, are, you know, remove some levels of bias uh, from that. Uh, is that something that you encounter uh, or advise on uh, with any of your clients? Yeah. Um, I like the segue from chasing dogs, from the dogs chasing you to responsible AI. That's that skillfully done, by the way, sir. Um, <laughs> Thank you. It's a really important point that, you know, there are some very public cases around, you know, tech firms and their hiring practices and using AI and only coming up with, um, you know, white men who play lacrosse um, <laughs> called Jared. Um, and, and thinking about kind of, you know, that, that should be, you know, that's why, you know, we struggle to have, you know, enough women in tech, but in terms of responsible AI, our clients are really trying to understand what does that mean? How do we have a, um, in, in something called the large language models, which is the data that feeds the gen AI, how do we actually have a diverse data set, whether we're in law enforcement, whether we're in the mortgage business, giving, um, giving loans. Um, you know, whatever business we're in. So how do we make sure we have a diverse data set and have checks and balances there? But also, how do we have a diverse set of developers thinking about mm. these use cases? Thinking about if we want to think about our emerging customer segmentation of small, medium enterprises that are diverse owned, whether that's Latino or African-American or kind of another di diverse segment, how are we actually bringing product designers that reflect that lived experience that are kind of understanding mm -hmm. that customer or user base that you're designing for so it's not just about data it's about developers and that's why it's bringing all people to kind of whether you're prompt engineers whether you're coders and, and not just just diverse by skin color diverse by something that's a real challenge in this country socioeconomic because Ooh. income inequality yeah. is one of the scariest thing in this country right now. Like my story mm. of the 1970s England was based on race. We have huge, and we've seen this grow, the huge divide between the haves and the have-nots based mm. on skills, based on socioeconomics, sometimes based on location, based on education, but it's growing. I see it growing mm. every day. You look at the markets, you look at the big companies, you look at the, the, the small companies, there's a bunch of people living paycheck to paycheck and everyone else seems to be living their privileged best life. And that's a really kind of scary topic. So. Um, responsible AI is just is really important, but for me, responsible business is the bigger issue. Like mm. people talk about, and you've talked about purpose and profits. Like we've got to, if we want to be business leaders and leave a sustainable kind of world to our kids and future kind of stakeholders that inherit the earth, how do we have sustainable business? How do we not just use all the resources and um, think about kind of short term profits quarter to quarter? How do we actually think about sustainable progress for kind of business and society so far Absolutely. beyond responsible ai i love the extension of that uh from responsible ai to responsible business uh and creating a better ultimately society um you know a global culture uh where you know it's beneficial for not just people at the top uh, but every which way and you know we're sounding I... very woke both of us <laughs> I, I think we need to deal with it. like people are going to like people are either going to turn the volume up or turn it down right now but um yeah. i don't think we should apologize for that um yeah I, I think certain words like woke have been hijacked but 
we're trying to bring compassion and kind of a sense of responsibility to things that we can control. We're both in the business community. We can control that to some degree. So, um, yeah. but... so, so I, I, um, that's a great consideration. And so I want to, I want to thread this needle with two topics we were talking about before. Cause it's like, there's the, there's the issues of society with racism and what I'll summarize the, the, the financial, uh, um, ism as a uh, classism, uh, and, uh, finance then of course, like, uh, plays into that. Uh, but then also particularly there's this culture online right now of, uh, if you mention anything progressive, there's a section of the internet that will want to label it as woke and basically use it as a means of dismissing any underlying arguments. Uh, and I push strongly back against that uh, because the underlying, whether it's, whether, whether, regardless of someone's political affiliation, if we blanket dismiss arguments, um, we are essentially being destructive, not constructive. And there is a culture uh, that I think exists online right now where it is anti-cooperation, not cooperation as in business cooperation, but people collaboration is probably a better, uh, more accurate way to describe that. And if I could put anything onto the internet, um, <laughs> I would want uh, people to seek and find ways to collaborate more. Uh, because it's only through collaboration that we're going to be able to solve the greatest challenges of our time. And it's a bit of idealism, but, you know, if you don't set an ideal, then you don't necessarily have a worthy goal to work towards. It's not going to be perfect, but at least you have something to move in the right direction. And that's how we then begin to start to, you know, tackle issues of climate change and, you know, ethics of artificial intelligence and uh, humanitarian uh, values and such as well. But that's my soapbox. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying is how can reasonable people engage in a debate without it becoming ridiculously polarizing and us kind of retrench to I'm a climate denier or yeah. you're a socialist because you want everyone to have universal health care. But in reality, we're both trying to say, you know, we, we both have needs from certain positions and, and we want a kind of a sustainable future. We're expressing them in different ways. Um, I'm really glad that social media wasn't around when I was a teenager in my yeah. early twenties, because, um, there's people like me that would have been radicalized and there's yeah. disinformation flying around and whether it's about elections or whether it's about, um, racial hatred or other levels of intolerance, geopolitical aspects, like it's so easy for young people to kind of find what they want to find on the internet and take a position and just not engage with the other side yeah. online offline you know it's a really it's a really sad that a lot less people are actually meeting in you know offline places you know bars restaurants football places churches you yeah. know, religious places etc and so i think that the core is we all need to kind of remember things like respect and tolerance but again i'm calling myself out here in my in my teens and my twenties, I was much less tolerant and much less respectful Same. than I am now as a fifty year old man. That I kind of you know have to, and so I just worry for the young people today and how they're going to kind of learn some of that, whether it's from the home, whether it's from friends. But online communities are are really dangerous in terms of exacerbating existing stereotypes and 
disinformation is really the cancer that, that drives that. So to take it from the societal level uh, back to the level of the individual, because uh, one of my personal beliefs is that uh, leadership starts with the self. Uh, and uh, part of that um, is sometimes gifted to us uh, through our parents. And so I'm curious, uh, how, if any, <laughs> do you talk to uh, your children about, you know, leadership? Is that something that even like comes up? Yes. Um, and I, I force them to sometimes watch my podcast as well. So when they're watching this, <laughs> um, I think it really starts with um, being comfortable and confident in your own skin. Um, feeling like incredibly safe that even if you screw up or, you know, the worst thing that can happen is, you know, you might get a bad grade, you might lose some money, you might lose a year if, um, if you take the wrong courses, etc. But like, you know, your parents will still love you and, you know, God, you know, God willing, you'll still have like, you know, a say, uh, you know, a roof over your head and kind of food in the fridge. And so it's uh. really giving them that security. Um, and then also recognizing that, you know, my children have privileges that I never dreamed of as a child. You know, we live on the Upper East Side. They they take nice vacations. They go to good schools, et cetera. And so it's really remembering that they are very fortunate. And so it's building compassion. And so so whether it's kind of, you know, the love of self, being confident in your own skin, you know, feeling safe, feeling compassionate. And then using your advantage in a good way. So one of the things that really annoys my kids is I tell them that relationships are really important. And I sometimes call it networking. And to yeah. say that, you know, you should actually ask an adult when they come to dinner, kind of their views on the world, or you should understand more about AI. Um, you should understand what your, what your friends are doing in coding. You should understand if their parents, you know, have a job that makes them travel around the world, what, what they do. And, and so yeah. I just want them to be kind of curious, but also understand that relationships in the world of AI, in the world of business, in the world of technology, it's your relationships with everyone in society, you know, from the janitor to the CEO in your company, to your clients and your vendors. It's those mm. relationships that'll pull you through and it's relationships that that people will remember. It's not how well you put mm. it in the technology. It's not how much profitability you drove in a single quarter. It's not even how much of a pay rise you gave someone one year. It's going to be how you made them feel, how you showed up for them when they really needed you, um, you know, how you treat them when you're rising up the rungs in the corporate ladder, and also when you fall down, um, because you know, typically they, those people might pass you as well. And so I just think that um, you know, relationships learned from an early age is, is critically important. But again, I learned lessons the hard way, and I, you know, I learned kind of the tough way in terms of really hard feedback in a corporate setting. Um, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to give some of that to my kids, but it does start from kind of really focusing on kind of being confident in, in your own skin. That is sage. And I could also see a tall, tall bar for <laughs> a child to, uh, uh, live up to. But, uh, the way I relate to that is actually, I was, um, I think it's like Ron, um, uh, somewhere between the eight and 13 uh, years old. And I was uh, driving back uh, from um, my dad's office. Uh, he had like a little blue Volkswagen um, uh, car, um, you know, small town doctor, ultra East Jamaica, uh, only doctor in town, that sort of thing. And he said this thing that just like stuck with me uh, for the rest of my life, which is uh, he believed every generation should do better than the generation that came before, you know, and 
it he it wasn't an imperative, uh, but I heard it and it just really landed with me. Uh, now at that time, I, I I thought to myself I was screwed because this man is an MD PhD and he's the first bioethicist in the Caribbean. So how the hell am I going to top that? <laughs> but <laughs> it was a uh, it definitely inspired me uh, to do more. Um, and I have more. I have another question for you, but I wanted to pause just in case there was anything else. Uh, yeah, just share uh, that. your your point is like the classic immigrant story. But if you look at the economics now, this is the first generation where in the U.S. younger people are doing worse economically than their parents. Uh, Think about the cost of healthcare, the cost of education, yes. the rising costs of housing. It's really hard as a young person to actually get on the property ladder and follow the American dream. So. Um, whilst we all aspire for that for our children, um, I think it's like it's getting harder back to the income inequality and the, and kind uh. of the wealth gap. It, it's getting bigger in this country, and you know, inflation and policy and divisiveness are not are not helping at all. The environment has become more challenging, and that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is: uh, is there any overlap between the advice that you find yourself uh, giving? to your kids uh, and the advice that you find yourself giving to clients in navigating the difficulties that we're seeing in this world? I think all of the advice when we're helping companies transform their businesses, all the advice around what they're doing from a people component, how they make people feel, how they get people to adopt new ways of working, how they demonstrate new behaviors around curiosity and collaboration how managers need to give psychological, understand that psychological safety is important um, for their workers because no one can be their best self at work if they're living in fear, anxious about their job, or feel that they've got a boss who's just, you know, intolerant of them, whether it's based on race, sexual preference, etc. And so on the people aspect, absolutely. Um, mm. You know, well-being has been a big topic through the pandemic, Mark. All, all kinds of well-being, physical well-being, emotional well-being, financial well-being. Um, I think that's as relevant to that how we explain that to our kids, that they need to get off the couch and exercise, how they manage their money for those that kind of have pocket money, how they manage their mental health. Um, it's as important for our kids as it is, you know, CEOs and, and you know, people in their first job. Hmm. What would you say has been more challenging uh, for clients that you've worked with, um, trying to navigate the pandemic or trying to navigate all of the changes that are coming out with AI? Oh, goodness. Um, I think the pandemic after the first few months was much more straightforward. Um, huh. Why do I say that? First, everyone was in it together. Um, you know, every country, Everyone was in it together. We seem to have much more, much less divisiveness. Let's just talk about the U.S. as, as a kind of as the U.S., etc. Um, and so, and then you know, in different parts of the the U.S., they reopened and and kind of you know, it was it was dealt with. Work from home, regardless of what you read in the media around every you know CEOs in areas where I consult like banking want to go back to the old world. Work from home has been a huge success. Like we've done things uh -huh. where now now people are two to three days back in the office, but you would never uh -huh. have even believed that back in 2020 at the start of the year. And so uh -huh. the technologies work, 
the banking systems have worked, the stock markets have worked, you know, we even got vaccines, et cetera. So, but the, this challenge around AI is just, it, I'd say that's the have, challenge, have, but it's also have. the economic challenges that we have right now. Um, huh. And the things that drive the economic challenges, which is geopolitics, because yeah. the economic challenges of reshoring your supply chains and not manufacturing in China, if you take that extreme example, is a huge economic issue. If we all yeah. have to like pay two or three X Ed. for our products that we that we love and can't live without because we can't manufacture them in China, or if we don't have the chips to put in the products, that's a big issue. And so I think this confluence of geopolitical tensions, um, trade wars, etc. You know, obviously, the terrible war in Ukraine, you know, drove you know rises in commodity prices, oil prices, etc. But if we don't have kind of the semiconductors, the chips, if we don't have access to quality manufacturing in places like China, um, mm-hmm. it's going to put a huge economic strain on us. And technology can be some of the only levers that you have to drive out productivity and actually manage costs as a business. And so, um, it's not just it's not just AI, and I'm going to lose my job. It's you know, how, how do we think about production? How do we think about costs? How do we think about prices that consumers will pay? And, you know, we've had globalization for a reason because it absolutely makes sense in terms of it drives economies. Um, it can actually work and be um, a codependence that everyone benefits for. We just need to um, probably turn down the volume on the on the tensions and the threats around this stuff. But you know, our clients are, are worried about that economic uncertainty, the geopolitical mm-hmm. aspect, and also they want to be the right side of how they use the technology in a responsible way and drive the productivity gains back to what we talked about earlier. Mm, so speaking of economic uncertainty, I could hear people listening into what you just shared and thinking to themselves, yeah, globalization, amazing at the macro scale, but do countries with smaller GDPs get left behind? Do smaller businesses get left behind uh, because they don't have the economies of scale of maybe, you know, mid and enterprise level businesses, but you've also shared that you work with uh, small businesses as well. And so what advice do you provide to them to be able to stay competitive and for them to also experience some of the growth that come with technological changes like AI? Yep. Um, I mean, s- small businesses are going to be there. Like, if you take just take the U.S., um, there could be huge growth through the small business sector, through entrepreneurs, through technology startups, through think about the service industry. How much are we spending on services right now? Whether it's um, in the in the kind of the cosmetic industry, everybody wants to look good. The fitness industry, everyone wants to kind of you know work out and kind of you know buy that, you know, buy that bike or actually go to those fitness classes, et cetera. Um, We're traveling a lot more post-COVID. And again, it it could be luxury travel. It could be simple travel. Um, But there's a lot more kind of, you think about small businesses that could be adjacent to things like travel, you know, the travel industries. And so, you know, small businesses are going to kind of be the life, but they can be nimble, et cetera. Um, But they've got to think of, figure out like how they use this technology as well. How do you use AI to really understand kind of your customer needs. How do you give customers new experiences around travel that they haven't yet thought of, but you understand more about them and to say, you know, Mark wants to actually go to a couple of national parks this summer, but it's really difficult for 
for Mark to envision how to bring a couple of kids there or if he wants to bring his parents there and drive around and, and kind of, you know, is there access there or is he worried about access to healthcare, et cetera. And so there's yeah. an opportunity there for small businesses. But you think at the macro level, I don't actually think it's about the GDP. It's about looking forward for these countries to say, am I going to grow my economy through services or products? Um, do I have access to talent? Do I have a demographic dividend like they do in Africa and like they do in India? Um, or do I have an aging workforce like I do in Japan and Korea where they have to literally net export, import talent, um, you know, and digitize workplaces because there isn't enough people to do the work. And so I think people have got to look at it through kind of their workforce, what's going to drive comparative advantage for them around products or services. And then, and then how they use the rest of the world. There's a hmm. reason why a lot of service centers exist, not just in tier one cities in India, but in tier two and tier three in rural cities in India, because they have a very educated young population. A lot of them are English speaking or can learn to speak business English for a call, for, you know, a call center or a service center or an IT development center. And so it's looking at all of that together and to say, where can I actually think about accessing talent virtually in different parts of the world so i'm very bullish on globalization as a solution i just worry that we've got some rogue actors some world leaders and some misinformed parts of an electorate around certain countries that are trying to take a very nationalist agenda um and it's it's kind of very scary and concerning but i think we'll come out of the right side of this because ultimately i think the business community can 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 drive this, create economic outcomes for people, the dignity of work's really yeah. important and that can fund everything else that we need, you know, a functioning kind of law enforcement, healthcare and education system. Building on what you just said, uh, I would also share uh, with anyone listening in just from my own experience of working with um, almost exclusively uh, small businesses and startups uh, is actually something that you and I uh, we're talking about before we hit the record button, which is connecting on the basis of values. And uh, I was sharing this with my team uh, on a call prior to this, where if we start uh, connecting on the basis of values, it cuts across socioeconomic, you know, hierarchy and all of this. And uh, just within what you shared with, you know, looking at globalization and, you know, th you know, as tier one, tier two, tier three cities, if in the hiring process, you're also then checking for whether or not someone, you know, shares your values, then you don't, you don't just have this opportunity to, okay, find a win-win financial situation for everyone, but you also have this opportunity to create this humanitarian impact within the organization and through creating whatever products and services that you also, you know, provide to the market. Um, question for you, when it comes to AI, one of the, something I've shared with my clients is uh, when we're thinking about, you know, startups and everything, there's generally like three phases that we're trying to get in place. Infrastructure, you know, to start. And then we're typically wanting to increase the capacity of the existing systems. And then we're usually wanting to then increase the throughput through those systems. You know, when it comes to AI, how do you see it affecting the creation of infrastructure you know, does it create more infrastructure or does it, you know, would it help more with capacity? Would it help more with throughput or all of the above? Yeah. So I'm going to start with the throughput. One of the biggest constraints that we don't talk enough about 
is that lack of computing power if we all wanted to use large language models and AI. Um, I took an excellent class, and this is not an advert, it's just a fact at Stanford um, during my sabbatical this summer. It was called AI Strategy, um, AI for, for Strategists and Innovation. And we had these amazing kind of speakers who had started their own firms. We went to the Stanford lab, mm -hmm. we looked at driverless cars. Um, we talked about the regulatory and the legal framework, but the lack of kind of computing power is going to be a constraint. So you can't yeah. use kind of, you know, use this level of kind of AI and kind of looking at the large language models, et cetera. There's also a lack of data. Um, so the large language model, things like ChatGPT is an open source piece with data that's provided by you and I. Companies aren't going to use that. They're going to use their own private language models that they have to kind of feed the beast themselves. And so that's kind of yeah. happening now. And as we mm -hmm. said, as you said earlier, that training data needs to be de-biased, needs to kind of represent the diversity, et cetera, and needs to kind of be continually man maintained. So um, that's, that's exactly why it's so early stage and experimentation is the big buzzword from businesses right now. Use cases, um, companies saying, how do we use this in our policy administration in insurance? How do we use this in HR to automate the generation of an employee handbook or changes changes to it? You know, how do we use it responsibly in the recruitment process? Mm. Um, how do we give predictive measures to you know our consumers to say, based off of what you purchased here and what you liked, you might like these other products, and oh, we could wrap some services around it. So. It has huge utility, um, but right now it's about experimentation so that our clients can think about what are the revenue and the kind of cost outcomes they can they can really influence. But there's a constraint yeah. around the data. There's a constraint around computing power. And at some point, this topic is going to have to intersect with ESG because ESG is about looking at our emissions, whether it's our personal emissions, our emissions as a company, um, and not to get too technical, but there's commitments the firms have made around scope one and scope two emissions within their ESG disclosures public companies have. And so if you're going to be using all of this computing power um, and driving up your emissions, you're going to have to say, do I choose carbon footprint or do I choose productivity for AI? Um, we know business for people want to use productivity, but at some point we, there may be a, a big tax on some of the um, kind of the decarbonization and the emissions agenda. So that's why it's it's really hard to make those decisions now. It's going to depend on regulation. It's going to depend on kind of what we see in terms of technology innovation, the availability of things like semiconductor chips, um, and the results of some of these experiments. So we're really early stage. Um, and so firms, we're just going to have to kind of, we're going to have to watch this. But um, it has, like we said, it has huge positive consequences if only us humans designed it in the right way and personal opinion welcomed some checks and balances around regulation and the right legal framework, um, which is um, where government have to have to play a role. We cannot leave this just to the business community. And again, not everyone will agree with that. My friends in the business community and my colleagues, but as a personal opinion, I've kind of seen too much of kind of just leaving this up to businesses and there can be unintended consequences and maximizing kind of short-term short -term returns. Uh, I do agree uh, and am an advocate for having sensible regulations in place 
because uh, ultimately regulations uh, function as boundaries uh, and without boundaries uh, things can go awry very quickly there's and what I heard within what you shared is that AI is going to have a positive impact on throughput assuming that we're able to be able to figure it out to get it right uh, another one point of clarity for the person who might not be familiar with the term what does ESG stand for um, environmental, uh, social, and governance. And so um, The Economist wrote a really good article about this, I think, last year to say we should actually think about those terms separately um, yeah. because social goals are things we talked about earlier to say, do we have good jobs and employment? Do we have a diverse workforce? Um, do we kind of care about things like, you know, education, etc.? The governance is really you know, how boards and management kind of make those decisions kind of while thinking about sustainability and the environment piece is, is the piece I talked about before to say, as we are developing our business and procuring products from the earth and processing them, etc., or as we are producing our driverless cars, what are we doing to the economy? Um, yeah. What are we doing in terms of the emissions that we're creating? Are we using fossil fuels to develop our our carbon intensive products, et cetera. And so firms have to now disclose what they're doing around that. You know, there's right. gender pay equity rules around the S piece in places in Europe. There's them in the emissions pieces, et cetera. But there's a whole view to say, there's a whole view that says this is incredibly politicized. Um, there's a bunch of businesses that are disclosing because just because they have to. And there's a there's a huge backlash against ESG and just to say that it's kind of it's too cumbersome, it's everything and nothing, and it needs to be kind of embedded more into specific kind of business decisions about product design and investments, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and so it's definitely something that people should be kind of reading about and saying, how does it relate to my company? What are we disclosing? What are our views? How do we think about it when we design products? How do we think about it when we engage with vendors, et cetera? We could do an entire podcast on just that piece. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not an expert on ESG, but I think that everyone yeah. needs to build expertise on these important topics at a base level. And there's, the good thing today is there's so much access to resources that we can all learn, be curious learners around, around new topics. I absolutely agree. I, I don't know if this has ever uh, come up um, uh, before this now, but uh, I, I have uh, more than average uh, exposure to that uh, thanks to my degrees in environmental science. Uh, so I, I, I very much relate to um, working with companies that do have an active interest uh, in, you know, even just, you know, noting what might removing externalities you know uh, that uh, would have a negative impact uh, on the environment um, for the sake of increasing the bottom line I think we can actually do uh, both we can have an impact, a positive impact on the environment and also still uh, grow profits and also do good for humanity as well might be idealistic uh, but if we don't aim for it then we'll never get there um, follow question is I was talking with a friend of mine. Uh, he's done over one billion in sales uh, for in his former role at Best Buy. And one of the things that he said to me that just stuck with me is that all businesses are trying to do three things: they're either trying to make money, cut costs, or save time. For 
do those priorities change for the different kinds of clients that you work with at enterprise, mid-market, and small business levels? Um, cut time and cut costs. There's a, obviously a bigger cost base in in larger companies, um, and so that's kind of um, kind of one area. Um, I think we have to unpack the making money piece. Yeah. So the, you know, you can make you can make money by kind of producing a set of products that meet a certain need for a certain period of time, um, and kind of have outsized returns, and then. When there's an innovation that happens, you know, there's, or a change, then, you know, you're going to have to reinvent, you know, that business model. So if you're producing, you know, a, something to meet a healthcare need, like in the times of COVID, like a vaccine, and then, you know, COVID's gone away and you've got to kind of think about protecting that, you know, how are you going to kind of reinvest and think about, you know, replacing that revenue? That's kind of an important point. But um, I think all businesses are thinking about the how do we make money sustainably? And again, I'm not being yeah. woke and um, just saying that this is about purpose. Full-blooded, red-blooded capitalist companies need to think about how they make money to say, you know, what are the products we're providing? What is it that we can differentiate to our customers? Can we gain a bigger share of wallet? Can we wrap services around these products, etc.? cetera? Um, but that all does relate to, you know, do we have quality products? Do we mm. actually understand our customers? Do we have good data, et cetera? So there's a lot under the, you know, and do we have a good reputation when when things go wrong, when there's kind of service issues with our products or when there are kind of um, quality issues with our products? So um, there's a lot under the, the making money piece. But yeah, saving costs, yeah. saving time is is one of the areas that firms can control right now. And they're, they're focusing on that to the extent that, that they can. I just want to thank you for helping me to win an argument that I've been having with him because I, I, I said we could add a fourth one and now I'm going to tell him that Bushan agrees with me and I'm going to go back and say we could add a fourth one which is make an impact. Uh, so awesome, I'm down for this. Uh, I just want to say that uh, you've been very, very generous uh, with your time uh, and just your experience uh, and philosophy. I have just a few more questions uh, and this next one might be a difficult one. I uh, just want to give you that um, a preamble there. If you were stuck on a desert island with one dessert for one week, which one would it be and why? Does it have to be a dessert? It does. It does. Um, Stratutella ice cream. That was very specific. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> We, we like ice cream. My kids and I, like my oldest daughter likes ice cream. We like Stracciatella. We went to Italy for Christmas. And we, I think we're eating it every day. Um, it's good. Yeah, It'll be awesome. hot on the desert island, I assume, and there'll be a refrigerator. That's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, hey. it's in this dream scenario, we'll make it happen. Um, we'll find that some solar panels. Question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to prep people because um, because <laughs> uh, that's the setup for the more difficult question, uh, which is if you had to choose between oatmeal raisin cookies and chocolate chip cookies which one and why oatmeal raisin because i'm going to pretend that they're slightly healthier because <laughs> of the oatmeal it's probably not true <laughs> that's great uh so my dad is the same way and i think i learned it from him like i i'm really into uh soft oatmeal raisin cookies and about 80 percent of podcast guests seem to prefer chocolate chip <laughs> 
and they will die on that hill, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and there's like just a few who are like, well, do you know there's actually chocolate chip and oatmeal raisin that you can find one-on-one? One? I'd be like, oh, wow, yeah. Have you have you tried those? Have you seen those? No, not the mixed ones. Okay, well, next time you you know happen upon a grocery store, definitely check it out. Maybe try it with the kids. Um, but the uh, semi-final question uh, that I have for you is, if you could go back in time to Bushan before the world of consulting, knowing everything that you know now, what advice would you give to yourself? Um, be kinder to yourself and be kinder to others when <laughs> you're um, kind of growing up in the industry. Um, <laughs> you know, when you've got your first management job, don't expect everyone's going to um, be able to think the way you do, be able to kind of analyze data, understand that different people kind of get there in different ways um, or never get there or just have different hidden strengths that, that you can't you can't see and are very different to yours. Um, and, huh. just, and, and also kind of be kind to yourself. You don't have to work um, ridiculous hours. You don't have to accept... Uh, some of the unconstructive feedback that you get from bosses or people that treat you in a certain way that, again, you wouldn't even think of in today's environment um, because, you know, business has, has moved on and society's moved on. Um, but I think it's I think it's that, and I think that's a good recipe for kind of business leaders today, especially those in a position of leadership or privilege, um, to say, like, are you, are you bringing enough compassion? Is compassion something that you're you're pushing for your 18 year old, your 21 year olds to actually bring, they, it's not all about proving yourself and kind of the, the, the macho culture of business yeah. and 18 hour days and five days in the office, etc. Mm. Well said. And thank you uh, for sharing all of this and all of you. Uh, this has been fantastic. Where can we find out more hey. about you? Um, well, first of all, thank you. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. It, it doesn't feel like work. It actually just feels like, um, it's fun and it's a little therapeutic, you know, going down memory lane and then looking forward. Um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on X, uh, I'm, if, if you, as you'll see, like I, I, I take LinkedIn really seriously. I think it's really important to have a point of view on certain things. If I can be helpful to people to formulate their own thoughts, I get a lot of very nice feedback from non-clients especially younger people that they really enjoy the, the stuff that i share um and kind of things like this that i put out and so so that that's really there and you know we've i publish a lot and speak a lot over the years and um to the fact the, the extent that people find that interesting um you could you could see some of that on my linkedin feed as well excellent thank you so much thank you hey thanks for checking out the show if you liked it go ahead and hit the like button and also subscribe so you don't miss another one it also tells us which ones that you like the most so that we can then do more interviews like that. If you want to go from idea to implementation though, especially if you're wanting to productize your expertise so that you can scale your impact on your clients and of course grow your business, then join our email list. There we're going to talk about how modern consultants can productize their expertise so that they can have a greater impact on the world around them and live life on their terms. If that's up your alley, I hope to see you on the other side. Talk soon.